KPFA Community Powered. And happy holidays. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is December the 23rd, 2014. Jingle bells. Tiny Tim time. For me, Christmas is always that Victorian Dickensian stuff. Can't get away from it this year. Ah, it's getting to me. I didn't think, I didn't think it would hit me like that again. Old age must be making me uh, sentimental or just uh, maybe it's this apocalyptic scene going on all around us. The four horsemen of the apocalypse riding hard, yes. (laughs) But mayhem is in the saddle and rides mankind. My mother always said she didn't mind the fourth horseman, death, you know, the old man with the scythe, but she said she could do without the other three, war, famine, and plague. Ah, biblical stuff, Homeric. I don't know how to cope with this deluge. Uh, I, what is it? I try every day to come up with a new thought, and I don't think that's going to solve nothing. The disaster du jour uh, <laughs> seems seems to be getting, what is it, it multiplies every morning, you know. One day there's a couple, the next day there's six, like those people who are running their cars and vans into groups of people over there in France, you know. I thought it was just one, but now this morning I see that that's, what, three. Anyway, scattershot, uh, random mayhem, uh, used to be drive-bys. Anyway, I looked through my notes on street violence. Uh, I looked through all my, uh, Little, little, little files, the threat to young black men, all the things I collected when I was a school teacher over there in Oakland in the urban schools, Huey Newton's old school. And, 
I thought to myself this morning, it was ever thus. I don't know why people act like all this uh, mayhem with the uh, death of the young men is something new. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean I don't mean to shrug or laugh about any of this. It's just that uh, I'm surprised. People are surprised. Back in 1968, Huey Newton, the uh, guy who tried to organize the anguish of his community, uh, tried to get together the Black Panther Party. Uh, brought his book with me today. He he called it, his title of his book is Revolutionary Suicide. It's out of print. I'm not sure. I've got an old hardback here. Uh, when Huey Newton was young and hopeful, he tried to gather the Panthers, the Black Panthers, into a revolutionary movement. He distinguished revolutionary suicide from reactionary suicide. <laughs> That's the kind of suicide these days. What is it? They're reacting, but of course they want to take a dozen people with them. Anyway, reactionary suicide is all about being a victim. That's another kind. Uh, hmm. Revolutionary suicide was about living for the future. Founding the new party and looking to create a new world. Now, it is true, as a lot of people believe, that that might have been an illusion back in the day, but back in the 60s. But I think it was a real illusion, as Barack Obama has said, uh, the black community was following that North Star then as now. I remember students writing or making posters about, you know, uh, people following the great red star that was Soviet, uh, Soviet communism. I don't know, uh, it's strange what happens to good ideas when people get their hands on them. Said <laughs> George Bernard Shaw used to say, we should have had socialism long ago, but for the socialists. Let's take one look at Huey Newton, and then I want to uh, look into Harper's for December. In Harper's, there's a terrific article on prisons, the men in prisons in the industrial prison complex. But first of all, let's look at the epilogue of Huey Newton's book, Revolutionary Suicide. It's 1973. Huey Newton writes, I am we. There is an old African saying, I am we. If you met an African in ancient times and asked him who he was, he would reply, I am we. This is revolutionary suicide. I, we, all of us are the one and the multitude. So many of my comrades are gone now. 
Oh, some tight partners, crime partners, brothers off the block are begging on the street. Others are in asylum, penitentiary, or grave. They are all suicides of one kind or another who had the sensitivity and tragic imagination to see the oppression. Some overcame. They are the revolutionary suicides. Others were reactionary suicides who either overestimated or underestimated the enemy, but in any case were powerless to change their conception of the oppressor. The difference lies in hope and desire. By hoping and desiring, the revolutionary suicide chooses life. He is, in the words of Nietzsche, an arrow of longing for another shore. Hmm, Nietzsche. Ah, the guy, the guy in uh, prison that I'm going to read about, the one in the Harper's Magazine article, <laughs> he talks about reading Nietzsche. I think they've all read Nietzsche wrong, but never mind. That's just my, uh, my silly idea. Anyway, Nietzsche says that uh, choosing life, shooting an arrow, yes, arrows of longing for another shore. Both suicides despise tyranny, but the revolutionary is both a great despiser and a great adorer who longs for another shore. The reactionary suicide must learn, as his brother the revolutionary has learned, that the desert is not a circle, it is a spiral. When we have passed through the desert, nothing will be the same. You cannot bare your throat to the murderer. As George Jackson said, you must defend yourself. Take the dragon position as in karate. Make the front kick and the back kick when you are surrounded. You do not beg because your enemy comes with a butcher knife in one hand and a hatchet in the other. He, your enemy, will not become a Buddhist overnight. The preacher, Ecclesiastes, said that the wise man and the fool have the same end. They go to the grave as a dog. Who sends us to the grave? The unknowable, the force that dictates to all classes, all territories, all ideologies. He is death, the big boss. An ambitious man seeks to dethrone the big boss to free himself, to control when and how. How he will go to the grave. There is another illuminating story of the wise man and the fool found in Chairman Mao's little red book. A foolish old man went to North Mountain and began to dig. A wise old man passed by and said, Why do you dig, foolish old man? 
Do you not know that you cannot move the mountain with a little shovel? But the foolish old man answered resolutely, While the mountain cannot get any higher, it will get lower with each shovelful when I pass on my sons and his sons and his sons' sons will go on making the mountain lower. Why can't we move the mountain? And the foolish old man kept digging, and so to the generations that followed after him. And the wise old man looked on in disgust. But the resoluteness and the spirit of the generations that had followed the foolish old man touched God's heart. And God sent two angels who put the mountain on their backs and moved the mountain. Now, this is a story Chairman Mao told when he spoke of God. He meant the 600 million who had helped him to move imperialism and bourgeois thinking, the two great mountains. Footnote here, <laughs> the 600 million have become, what is it, a billion and a half? Uh, oh, time, time. The reactionary suicide, says Huey Newton. The reactionary suicide is wise, in quotes, wise. The revolutionary suicide is a fool, a fool for the revolution in the way that uh, St. Paul meant when he spoke of being a fool for Christ. That foolishness can move the mountain of oppression. It is our great leap and our commitment to the dead and the unborn. We will touch God's heart. We will touch the people's heart. And together... We will move the mountain. A little heartbreaking to read that. Uh, at this date, uh, almost half a century gone now. And uh, I don't know. I think that the mountain is moving <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. But uh, there's an old adage, you know, uh, two steps forward and one step back, and then as I get very old, I look around and see sometimes it's three steps forward and five steps back. But never mind, never mind. We have to hang in and hang on, folks. Uh, now, this article that I have in my other hand called Christmas in Prison is of interest to people who are deeply concerned about uh, the prison industrial complex. It looks like the prison industrial complex is the future, the future of labor in this country. Uh, think of all the ancient slave societies building the pyramids. Several states have become source for, uh, what do we call it? We can't call it slavery. Why not? It is a kind of slavery. Anyway, this article is in the December 
issue of Harper's Magazine. And it's written by a man who's been in prison for 32 years. He has books, Kenneth E. Hartman, author of Mother California, A Story of Redemption Behind Bars. Once again, Kenneth E. Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N, author of Mother California, A Story of Redemption Behind Bars. <laughs> he's, what is it? he's a little upset about what they've done to Christmas behind bars. Uh, uh, he starts out talking about his innocence when he arrived in prison. He says, my first Christmas in prison, <laughs> I'm living in a state of idiotic denial. I've been sentenced to life without possibility of parole. I was among the first to receive such a sentence in California. It's so new that the prison system doesn't know what to do with me. For want of a better solution, I got sent to Soledad, a traditional gladiator school designed primarily to inculcate young men into the prison way of thinking, into the prison way of conducting oneself. I readily embrace this bleak and oversimplified lifestyle. I'm ready to become one of the legion of living dead inside the miles and miles of chain link that separate what is in here from what is out there, he goes on to describe the culture of tooth and claw that he found when he arrived in prison at age uh, 19. He goes on to say, A year later, it's Christmas at Folsom State Prison, a vast granite tomb whose guards with their rifles cradled in their arms look to have been whisked off the set of deliverance. I had been thrown out of Soledad, where my youthful lack of fear and my sentence uh, of forever had made me a problem. The moment I arrived at Folsom, I was placed directly into solitary confinement. The administration had explained I was too young to be released into the mainline prison. They decided to keep me segregated for almost another year until I turned 21. <laughs> I'm finally out of the hole, old enough to legally drink. No matter that I've been drinking since I was 13, the older guys have decided that I need to get drunk on this special birthday. Out of one of those steel drums that serve as trash cans comes a powerful brew, thick and fruity. I drink lustily, seizing this moment out of time, registering all of it in my memory. There's an ancient convict with a beat-up guitar whom everyone calls cowboy. He is summoned to sing Mama Tried, a prison classic by Merle Haggard, one of the few country singers who actually served time, as opposed to the many who liked to pretend they did. I have lived out the lyrics to this song since my days in the California Youth Authority. 
I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. Yes, that's the song. <laughs> I should sober up at this chilling line. But I sing it out loud with the raucous chorus of drunken thugs around me. <laughs> well, can't beat them, join them. Uh, let me read you a little more about this individual. Uh, he does talk a great deal about the prisons, about the, the architecture, the physical uh, effect of... You know how um, people say that uh, where you are almost uh, furnishes your soul. Consciousness, consciousness. The show before this one was talking about a new, new theory of consciousness and I always think of Gertrude Stein saying that uh, consciousness has replaced the soul. <laughs> I don't know uh, what happens to souls, but I know that they can sink, sink down to a level where uh, they would rather just not, uh, not exist. Uh, anyway, let's get down to Christmas here. Uh, I'm reading to you from Kenneth E. Hartman's uh, article in the December issue of Harper's. His book is Mother California, A Story of Redemption Behind Bars. The article is something else again. Uh, it tries to survey the, call it the trends in prison. Apparently, it's gone dark. The 80s, apparently, well, he talks about the 80s being a period of tremendous uh, incarceration. I don't know what we call it. Uh, uh, one of those eras in which all the politicians had to prove their manhood by sending people to uh, prison. You remember how Bill Clinton had to make a trip home to oversee uh, an execution in his state. Uh, helped him get the uh, election under his belt. Uh, okay, the largest freestanding cell block structure in the United States. That's where he is. <laughs> anyway, this guy finally winds up in uh, Tehachapi. Here he is in Tehachapi. <laughs> and bit by bit, the presence, the little um, doodads that are distributed to the naughty and the naughtier, he says, uh, they begin to dry up. Once upon a time, you know, a paper bag would be dropped in front of the cell, uh, Let's see, a paper bag, here's one. My cellmate, Al DeMarco, from the San Fernando Valley, tattoo artist extraordinaire, ten years my senior. He pulls the goodies in when the guard comes by to crack open the door. Inside, we find candy, nuts, cans of soda pop, a couple of oranges, combs, and address books from the Salvation Army. Some writing paper, some envelopes. At the very bottom is a Christmas card with a picture of a tree on it and a standard holiday greeting inside. Al tosses the card onto the small metal locker that sits at the end of the bottom bunk. 
It's the only card that will enter this cage. I make a ceremonious attempt to stand it upright on the locker near the iron bars that front our home. Keeps falling down every time people walk by, blown down by their wake. It ends up on top of the locker at the foot of the bed and stays there until after New Year's Day. <laughs> it reminds me of my Christmas trees. I once left one up until uh, June, I think. My older son was indignant, took the damn thing down. Uh, I like it when things fall apart. Anyway, uh, our prisoner goes on in 1985. At the start of the greatest crime crackdown and prison expansion in U.S. history, California built its first new maximum security facility up in the Tehachapi Mountains. The spine of rock and forest due north of Los Angeles that stymied the railroad barons for several years. Right, right, obviously. Perfect place for a prison. Anyway. And he talks about how the roads up there have to follow the old railroad tracks, switchbacks. Uh, anyway, a denuded quality, all barren fun functionality, no charm. He arrives in Tehachapi just before Halloween. <laughs> Says it was a holiday that had yet come, yet to come into its own in the mid-1980s prison culture. Uh, talks about the weather, goes on to say that uh, the weather there alternates between hot and windy and cold and windy. Now, here we have, uh, here we have a Dickensian episode. Love comes into this man's life, he says. I come to Tehachapi in pursuit of the one thing I could never buy, uh, on the tier, back there at Old Folsom. In the depths of my isolation and self-imposed banishment, a woman has come into my life and brought love to me in a way that transcends everything else I've ever known. I met her through the happy accident of a random phone call from deep inside the supermax unit of the Los Angeles Men's Central Jail. In the course of taking down a message, for my lawyer, a receptionist with a strong musical voice, wondered about my situation. What's jail like, she asked ingeniously. I gave her one of my well-rehearsed stoic responses and hung up. But when the echo of her voice wouldn't leave me alone, I had to call back. I described the encounter to the less evocative voice that answered. The reply was, oh, that must be Anita. At Tehachapi, I'm out in the visiting room with Anita every weekend. As the holidays approach, I assume the decorations will go up and candy canes might appear on the tables and the tree will be erected in a corner, but nothing of the sort ever happens, not even in the visiting room, the one place where the bleakest of prison usually allows the season to seep in. Uh, he goes on to describe the ways in which <laughs> even the oranges and bits of candy disappeared. Uh, any, uh, 
any evidence of personalization is stamped out. Uh, he says, I don't, of course, have some sort of divine right to a free man's Christmas. Not long after my 19th birthday, after a long night of heavy drinking and hard drugs and a couple of bloody brawls, I killed a man named Thomas Allen Fellows in a fist fight that he never stood any chance of winning. Okay, I recommend to you this article. If you are a school teacher, you might want to ask your students how they feel about Christmas in prison, whether it would help people, whether it would help the prisoners and help those of us on the outside, or whether they deserve to have the last bits of candy and, uh, and uh, what is it, uh, paper surprises, yes, cards. Anyway, never mind, this has been Jennifer Stone. Uh, I'll be back after Christmas with any luck. Till then... Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Here's another community-powered announcement from KPFA. The East Bay Meditation Center invites you to mindfulness and the possibility of freedom, featuring Oakland activist and scholar Angela Davis in dialogue with John Kabat-Zinn, author and founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. The event takes place on Thursday, January 15th at 7 p.m. in the Oakland Scottish Rights Center at 1547 Lakeside Drive in Oakland. The event is wheelchair accessible and will be American Sign Language interpreted. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit eastbaymeditation.org or call 510-268-0696. That's eastbaymeditation.org or call 510-268-0696.